You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, the projectionist has me. Hi, I am here with Yitzchak Kolokowski. Some of you might notice that sometimes Yitzchak, when he joins us, is on the road, journeying from, of course, uh, uh, where he works uh, in Weimar, Pennsylvania. Uh, you might hear sometimes uh, I'll sign off by saying, don't hit a cow, because uh, it has happened, right? <laughs> Driving is definitely something uh, that we take for granted. And yet we know, unfortunately, the amount of accidents that occur. Um, in general, these type of journeys. About a year ago, it was just about a year ago they ate the cow. <laughs> About a year ago with the cowboys, time does fly. Time does fly. Sometimes pigs fly too, and other pieces of sausage and other stuff uh, do as well. Which reminds me, I'm here at A and H, uh, and as listeners to our platform know, um, whenever I do a program as the Mashkiach from A and H, uh, I feel that what I should do, of course, is emphasize uh, the greatness of their product. Uh, sausages here, of course, aren't anything connected to pigs. They're all tacos akashras, but tacos atam. And the sausage is only uh, the tip of the meat uh, mountain that we have ready for anybody who wants to try the A&H products. There's sausages, hot dogs, mini hot dogs. There is pastrami, corned beef, roast beef, chunk pastrami, which is a very nice alternative for your cholent. Uh, along with, um, of course, the huge pastrami plates and the roast beef plates, kishka, all so many types of salami, I can't uh, even keep hold of it. Something called that I only discovered when I started working here, it's called servalot, which is a sort of a type of salami, but connoisseurs really understand it uh, as something very much top of the line. So all that type of, ask for it uh, in your stores, uh, ask your store owners to make orders from A&H because they have clearly the top of the line. I guess the greatest film about truckers, uh, which is called Thieves Highway. Um, it was written by a fellow by the name of A.I. Bezeries. And he actually wrote another uh, uh, a book about, uh, I think they're called They Drive by Night or something like that, also about truckers. So he seems like he was had some sort of history with them. Now, clearly... We understand that it's a difficult job, and this film indicates that. But what also it indicates was um, that the trucking industry, as we know from the Teamsters and others, is an industry where there's a lot of graft. There's a lot of uh, behind-the-scenes types of robberies and other things going on, not only with the, the mafia you know, holding off the truck, but the types of markups that occur between where the product is and what the trucker pays for it and what the trucker gets for it and what the what the um, uh, the person who is selling the trucker's wares uh, sells them for is such an extreme difference that you can imagine that this is like fighting over gold. There is so much um, lying going on in this film. There's so much... Um, uh, cruelty that's happening, as a matter of fact, uh, that you're shocked. We all know about the vice and prostitution. Uh, when we talk films that deal with uh, prohibition and illegal liquor, um, 
drugs, of course, on selling drugs. But here you see that even in what was it's considered sort of like the bread and butter, the, the, the meat and potatoes, the, the, the essence of what it means to bring things to market, even there in this, in this area of, which is the linchpin of all essential economic activity, which they get stuff from the farms to the market, into the consumer, there is so much uh, haggling and, and genevis and, and danger involved that it really, this film and, and really calls into question uh, any sort of morality of, of uh, directed by someone, Jules Dassin, a Jewish fellow, who not only was, was, was a, clearly a member of the Communist Party, and because of uh, the House on Americans Committee, actually left uh, America to make films in Europe. And uh, Jules Dassin, of course, is famous for uh, films that he did make in Europe. I think that uh, that one of you know some of his most famous films, of course, uh, were made there, like Riffy and Never on Sunday, etc. But this was a film he made in the U.S., and it is a uh, not only a shocking indictment over what what is happening, uh, what was happening in the United States, if, if if it was indeed true, maybe things were over overdone, but it is also so masterfully uh, uh, portrayed. I would say that um, it has um, it, it uses its its characters and 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 the cinematography uh, in a way that is gripping. Um, you you realize when you watch this film um, that it is extremely realistic and mature, adult, but it it reminded me very much of, of Cassavetes that characters are saying things that don't necessarily propel the plot. There's conversations that go on. There's exclamations that happen. Same way all of us, when we speak, not everything we say, I know this as an editor of podcasts, is crucial and essential. There's things that you say, but you mean something else. Most films were afraid to to do that. Most films were almost like, you know, taking a screenplay that was sort of similar to a uh, an actual theater production. Uh, like every every phrase being said by a character is crucial for the plot in terms of giving us some ideas. Especially if you're not able to show that action and it happens off stage, you have a character talking about it. In in this uh, film. So much happens between the conversations, between the characters. There's so much left unsaid, and it's shot in such a way that indicates that, that it really does, although it's, it, it, it's, it, it's not like, not a documentary, but it really replicates what the way human beings are and their fears. And just like all great film noir, um, there's always just shades of gray. There isn't any person who is incredibly noble and great even the and, and i'll talk about who who's in the film um it stars richard conte now you remember a couple of weeks ago it's look uh we in, in our in our program about uh two and a half jews behaving badly uh, i mentioned uh john garfield we talked about his death in 1951 richard conte was actually discovered by john garfield uh, Richard Conte uh, was in, uh, I, I don't know his complete filmography, 
but he is someone who sort of could, could play uh, equally a, a crooked fellow and also uh, a, a sympathetic hero. He always had that combination. He's, uh, he, he doesn't have the classic good looks of a Cary Grant or of an Eric Flynn. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, he's not, he's, he, he isn't just a, uh, you know, a character actor's face. Um, he has a certain vulnerability. Um, and in this film, especially, he's sort of the hero, but you realize that he's acting as an immature human being. Uh, what is his purpose here? And why he's not really a trucker. He's someone who, who was a decorated soldier from World War II, who has worked as a mechanic right after the war. He comes back with with some money uh, to his home in Fresno again uh, in order to meet his fiance, uh, played by Barbara Lawrence, uh, and his parents. And his parents are played by two Jews, <laughs> uh, Morris Karnowski and Tamara Shane, two famous Jewish actors and actresses who were part of the Yiddish theater. Morris Karnowski, of course, is one of the great, great Jewish Yiddish actors who everyone stole his almost every performance he he was involved in in Hollywood. He plays Yanko Garikos. He plays a Greek father and a Greek mother. It's played by Tom Rishane. And he discovers um, um, that, his, that his father has lost his legs in a terrible trucking accident. And the trucking accident seems to have been a byproduct of bringing tomatoes on consignment from the Fresno area, from the rich California fruit area, to the marketplace of San Francisco, San Francisco's famous farmer's market. And it was there that clearly an Italian uh, uh, fruit uh, wholesaler uh, was guilty of taking uh, his product and not paying him and getting him drunk and putting him somehow in a truck that eventually had an accident or maybe wanted to have an accident causing uh, this terrible tragedy to occur. Um, the actor who plays uh, this Italian, Mike Figlia, uh, another Jewish guy, is could also play you know, a, a terrible crook, uh, but also can sometimes play the tough hero uh, and someone who really cared about things. Uh, um, but also sort of like Richard Conte, it was hard to really put him into one, uh, one format. Um, when Richard, when Nick, Richard Conte's character, discovers that his father has been maimed like that, and it was due to the negligence or maybe the malicious acts of this Mike Figlia, uh, he decides that he is going to uh, have his revenge. Now, how is he going to have his revenge? Well, it turns out that um, uh, he discovers that the truck that his father had is being used by another trucker, uh, sort of hard as nails. Uh, grumpy old guy by the name of um, uh, his name is Ed Kenny, Ed Kenny, played by uh, Millard Mitchell, who we uh, highlighted a little bit as the colonel in uh, Foreign Affair. But that was Billy Wilder's film uh, that was also made just a couple of years ago. Uh, a, a, a trucker who's willing to take advantage of the farmer, the Polish farmer who's got the apples that these golden delicious apples that he found out about, that is one of the greatest farms that that's planted in such a perfect place that the sun gets on them and it's sweet and it get, can get to market earlier. Um, Millard Mitchell's character, Ed, uh, is wants to, to buy these apples 
for 75 cents a box where he could sell them for at least three or four or five dollars a box, perhaps, in San Francisco. And you see the film, you know, makes use of the fact of the gigantic markup. When uh, Nick discovers that his truck, his father's truck is being used for this, he takes the money that he was going to spend on getting married in order to buy as many of these apples as possible, in order to bring them to San Francisco from Fresno to confront uh, Figlia and somehow get from him all the money that was that he should have gotten for those tomatoes and in some way um, indicate that he was going to get justice for his father. Now, again, what sort of justice is he going to get? He's not going to the police. He's going to somehow get as much money as he can from him. And this really shows you how people, Yitzchak in a sort of in this uh, capitalistic way of looking at things, don't really know what they want. <laughs> they know that they're angry. They know that they're upset. He wanted to get married. He wanted to be besimcha with his family. It turns out now his father's lost his legs. He's got to do something. So on the spur of a moment, he decides that he is going to uh, get some of his, take some of the money to buy the apples. With the rest of the money, he's going to actually get a truck that's from U.S. Uh, from the U.S. Army surplus. And you can see this truck has a white star like the trucks that were used in, in, in World War II. And it's that truck, though he's never been a truck driver before, that he is going to drive like his father had done and bring these apples uh, along with his friend Ed to market. And somehow when he meets the this 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 um this ruthless uh, la uh fruit salesman who has no uh, morals, this Mike Figlia, he's somehow going to get everything he can from him and maybe even physically assault him. That's sort of his plan. <laughs> Very vague. It turns out, by the way, that um, there's sort of this these two characters that are sort of played for comic relief. Um, one of them is actually a, 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 a famous actor, uh, even in, in, in silent films. I was very surprised to see him there. It's Jack Oakey, who I think we've talked about when we talked about um, we talked about The Great Dictator, where he plays Mussolini. Uh, Jack Oakey plays a character called Slob, <laughs> and uh, his friend is Joseph Pevney. I don't know if he's been in that many films, but he seems to have been a pretty well-known character actor as well. These two guys are um, these two guys are following Nick and Ed. Uh, they would like to get in on the deal, and in fact, they find out where the Polish uh, farmer is. They decide to buy the apples as well. And they end up following Ed. Now, um, what's interesting is that that once you get on the road with them, the film really gives you uh, a sense of what it's like with this great uh, location shooting, of what it's like to be a truck driver, uh, how difficult it is, how um, how uh, unsafe the roads were, how hard it is to keep. Uh, all your um, cargo. Uh, uh, Nick gets a flat tire. And when he tries to change it, he finds that um, the jack slips and he, he's almost buried completely under the weight of his truck. Um, and it's only because Ed arrives that he's able to extract him from under the truck. But he, he, almost for the rest of the film, which pretty much takes place 
over a period of about 30 hours or so, or 30 something, 36 hours or maybe less. Um, he has a wound on his neck um, from the difficulty of, of, of changing a, a, a truck tire, which, which sounds like he's never done, although he worked for a mechanic. Um, and, and, and you see from there that there's a certain amount of honor, even among, even among this area, that is going to help him. He's sort of a partner with them, although he could have really just you know, let him die there. Um, Ed's truck doesn't make it to, because it's the old truck of his father, but Nick gets there first. Ed is being followed by um, uh, you know, the, the two jokers in the other truck. The film keeps on switching back between the two truckers. And as he's driving, although I'm not sure exactly the mile between Fresno and San Francisco, you can see Nick falling asleep. He's been injured by the, by the truck that fell on his neck. And the hundreds and hundreds of miles that it takes to get to San Francisco uh, becomes almost an interminable uh, amount of time and distance to be able to, uh, and, 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 and Dassin shows you this by um, shots of the dashboard, of shots of the, of the trucks that are coming. And Yitzchak, you drive on two lanes, highways all the time. And when driving two lane highways at night, um, you can imagine with the, the the big flashing lights of the truck coming, it's a very pressure filled, difficult to drive. And Dassin does a great job of indicating that in the way he shoots those scenes of how Nick is is really almost um, completely <laughs> plotting while he's driving and falling asleep while he's driving. And the danger is 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 clearly there. Um, somehow he is able to make it um, to the, the farmer's market. And it's there you see that Lee J. Cobb's character, Figlia, is indeed one of the worst slimy uh, type of wheeler dealers you can find. Um, he has his henchmen actually uh, puncture the tires in his truck when he realizes what it is that he's holding. Um, and not only that, uh, he hires a streetwalker and unlike other films where the streetwalkers were club singers, <laughs> there's no question about it. This is about the Valentino Cortez, who we have concentration camp survivor in the film, The House on Telegraph Hill, that we talked about two weeks ago. Here she plays Rika, uh, an Italian, like her own uh, nationality, an Italian whore, who is there to pick up Nick and to somehow get him away from his truck. And that way... Figlia is going to be able to sell everything off the truck to all the <laughs> secondary uh, mom and pop store owners who are played by various character actors um, uh, that are quite well known to people. Uh, and they're going to pay um, you know, six, you know, uh, six or seven uh, dollars. A uh, Hope Emerson is one of them. Six or seven dollars. <laughs> For the box of, of the box of apples, remember they started off as seventy five cents, and now um, the, the the guy who's selling them in the market is selling them for ten times that amount, and who knows what the consumer is going to have to pay for that. Um, for some reason, um, although she plays it very well, this this role uh, of a streetwalker, um, she sees something about Nick 
she realizes how hurt he is and she doesn't really want him uh, to be to be shafted completely um, by Figlia. I mean, suffice to say that he finds himself drawn to her because she, for some reason, although she's clearly uh, a very street savvy person, she shows an interest in him, and she she's there really to teach him about the world. He really doesn't know. He's been a soldier, but he really doesn't know the real world at all. And is there any chance of him getting any sort of compensation the way he hopes he's going to get it? Um, without giving out too many spoilers, uh, I will tell you that um, Ed doesn't make it. <laughs> um, and it's, it's, it's an incredible scene of how of what occurs. And even though um, you know, most of the characters uh, don't seem to have much of a, of a conscious, conscience, um, in the face of death, in the face of terror, um, you see some positivity come out. And uh, actually, Jack Oakey's character uh, becomes uh, not just a, although he's a slob, he actually is able to come out and reveal some sort of a strength that uh, is it, quite surprising. Um, and uh, suffice to say that he Nick ends up discovering quite a bit. Um, he discovers not only the underbelly of the world that his father has been on the periphery of, he also discovers that even Figlia you know, is, 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 is somewhat of a coward underneath. And that a lot of the bravado of these tough guys is really paper thin. He also discovers that his, although he calls his fiancee to come, because originally he, he's able to demand from Figlia that Figlia give him uh, whatever the $6 a box, which gives him $4,000 that he's now able to get married. Uh, when she shows up, by that time, the $4,000 has been taken away from him because Figlia sends his students to beat him up and, and take the money away from him. And his 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 fiance isn't so interested anymore, and he finds himself drawn um, to Rika, who, despite the fact that she's obviously had many men, um, ends up really becoming uh, the love interest. And again, this is a very interesting turn because uh, you know she's not going to, you know, um, because somehow she sees in in Nick some maybe something that she can take care of. So the film um, uh, is, is in a way, as I said, a condemnation of American life in terms of, of, of how uh, the economy is run, how it's so vicious and brutal. We know the communist world was much worse. Um, and these excesses are really part of what it takes to be a human being. But I think uh, this film is, is, uh, it, it is an unusual subject matter and the characters that are portrayed are portrayed in a way that really make you understand not only the, the risks that truckers take but also uh, really how precipitous and difficult almost every journey to to enlightenment is you know, we're all thrust it's look as young adults into what we think are our life paths and the world teaches us things all the time um, about 
human nature, about our own character. And that's why I think this really, you know, uh, Thieves Highway is uh, really uh, is emblematic of what film noir can really do in ways that other, you know, very bright Hollywood productions aren't able to do. Let's talk about a journey from from this world into a different world that's really in front of us. And this is what we promised to talk about last week, uh, The Incredible Shrinking Man. So I want you to know the background of this film and you know, what makes it such a powerful um, sci-fi classic. Yeah, I mean, you know, Universal Studios, they were famous, of course, for years for their horror movies, you know, the the, the classic horror movies. And then in the 1950s, they went away from that type of classic gothic type of horror into the science fiction realm. And they produced, most of their movies were high, you know, better quality than, you know, other studios that were making, you know, science fiction monster movies at the time, like, you know, American International and others, because, you know, they had slightly bigger budgets uh sometimes more than slightly bigger budgets they had very high budgets for the time um and they wound up you know making these movies that really especially jack arnold who was the director of this film he made quite a lot of these movies for universal and uh this might be the best one uh of of the universal sci-fi movies of the 50s i mean jack arnold made the creature from the black lagoon and he made the uh it came from outer space and a few others their movie uh, grant williams uh was actually discovered by rosalind russell and uh went a little bit on in uh theater never never made it to broadway although he often would kind of uh claimed that he was on Broadway, though he never was. But his, he was in a Western with Rory Calhoun the year before this, uh, also directed by Jack Arnold for Universal. And then he he made this movie, The, the Incredible Shrinking Man. And he didn't, he didn't, you know, make a career out of, you know, he didn't become typecast as the the sci-fi actor because really he's portraying a very normal type of person. He's not, he's not portraying a, uh, you know, a mad scientist or any type of scientist, like, you know, most of these other movies, uh, you'd have, you know, like Richard Carlson or John Agar, one of these guys who were in a lot of these movies playing kind of the same character. And they were always kind of this, not a mad scientist, but a, a scientist, you know, who's going into, the mole people or, or the creature from black lagoon or it came from outer space, whatever is this here. You had just a regular guy. The movie opens out that he's out on a boat with his wife on a little vacation, relaxing. He asks his wife to go down to the galley of the boat to get him a beer, which I thought was interesting because it's one of the few references that I ever heard uh, of, of beer in any of these type of movies from, from this time. And, he uh and while she's downstairs he sees this cloud uh that's sparkling shimmering cloud passing through and it and he passes right over him and he gets covered with this dust which apparently you know was some kind of radioactive dust that 
causes uh, what it doesn't seem like it's a mutation as much as it's a molecular change that he starts to shrink. And so he starts off a few months later, goes to the doctor. It's William Shallert, who does appear in a lot of these movies, uh, as the doctor who's checking him out. And he, he notices that his clothes are his clothes are too big on him and he's he's actually started to shrink and they have no explanation for it other than that this cloud caused it lower than he was right yeah they they make these they the the way they did the special effects is they made these large sets and they had to progressively be making these larger and larger sets for him to appear small compared to his wife uh you know it's just him and his wife at home they don't have any children but they do have a cat and that does play very strongly in the movie uh but he's shrunk to the size of of a child and eventually the media gets a hold of it and they realize you know he stopped working they need money maybe if they sell this story to the media he's he's so embarrassed about it it really it becomes a really strong psychological journey that he goes through you know what you know almost uh, like you know type of things like here it's more of a journey but than in other movies but you know when where we examine the plight of people who are different you know whether it's the elephant man or other movies like that but here it's you know whereas someone like the elephant man i think one of i think one of the the beautiful parts of the film is as he's now midget size he meets uh, a couple of frustration, a sexual frustration. It starts off with him sunning himself on the right with his wife, you know, on this on this boat, um, and part of the 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 fear that he has, you know, is that he's not only going to shrink, but his wife sees him as as a child, as a toy. Uh, he's lost her completely. And now when he's midget size, right, he, he finds himself attracted to this, to the, to, to, to the, the midget woman, the, the, the little person, uh, right? Um, right. And so, so they, uh, they go out to, to have uh, soda together at the, you know, at, at, at the, the drugstore, like it was in the fifties. And then they, he realizes that he is shrinking again, that, you know, for a while he thought he was done shrinking and now here he is shrinking again and he runs back home. And then the next scene, again, it, it goes very quickly that he's living in a dollhouse. Right. He's living in a dollhouse. And, and again, his wife has to tend to him. I can sort of like pick him up and, 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 and you realize how inane it is and how, you know, incredibly tragic and 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 strange. <laughs> I mean, he 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 narrates the story. It's based on a, a on a novel that came out the year before by Richard Matheson, uh, who of course made a lot of you know popular. Science Richard fiction. Matheson, of course, was was one of Rod Serling's favorite yeah. authors to. Um, penning so many of the Twilight Zone episodes, most of them a lot more saccharine. And sentimental than this. I mean, Richard Matheson yeah. was a well. He also he also did the I Am Legend, which became the the uh, Omega Man, which was you know a much more of a gritty type of a story. Although I I don't know how much it really followed the original story. Uh, I, I I you said you read the the book. I never I never yes read I it. did read the book. I did find yeah. it 
and it was a quite a uh, although you know we I know when we were off pod we spoke about the way this film was promoted the book's cover that I had was a little bit it was quite a lurid one to tell you the truth uh, about the incredible shrinking man um but you mentioned uh, and 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 the uh, the fact that the trailer of this film you said how the trailer was uh was a very unique one yeah because So Yitzchak, that that's the official trailer on IMDb. That's, that's not the one that I saw. So I guess there was a more of a traditional trailer made than than, and this is more of what I would have expected the trailer. I remember seeing a trailer with Orson Welles narrating it. Even though Orson Welles has nothing to do with the movie, they had him narrate the trailer. It's Orson Welles speaking. I just saw the impossible happen before my astounded eyes. I saw a man grow smaller and smaller day by day. I saw the loneliest and most frightened creature on earth living a nightmare in a world of giants. The Incredible Shrinking Man. The Incredible Shrinking Man. Yeah, it ends with the words coming soon to astound you. I wonder if that was sort of like the pre-trailer um, uh, before what we before teaser now, yeah. You know, I guess before they had the the film finished, and uh, they wanted to build up some uh, excitement about it, because uh, you know, in a way, you know, 1957, maybe they thought that these films had run uh, their course already, and maybe that's the reason why they Universal wanted to uh, sort of like uh, you know, up the ante with uh, you know Orson Welles, of course, announcing who he is, right? <laughs> saying how he saw this most incredible film. Um, I don't know how Orson Welles sees him. Nobody else does. Uh, maybe he did it as a favor to, to Jack Arnold and Universal. I'm sure it wasn't a favor. Orson was, Orson, whatever he was, he didn't give anything away for free. Not him because she thinks the cat ate him. Then he'd be, you know, he sort of, you know, becomes sort of this, um, uh, you know, primitive fighter right he can't find any clothes that he somehow stitches some clothes on himself that fits him and then you know fighting with little pins and needles sticks he's he's he realizes that he's sort of entered into a whole different type of world i mean just before that what i what i was about to mention was that he he's narrating it himself and he describes how he became such a monster and how how bad he felt for his wife of how he's treating her, you know, as this little doll uh, before before he gets lost, and then yeah, he falls down into the into the cellar, and he's lost, and he has to, you know, just fight for survival, particularly against a spider, which they use a tarantula as the spider, which Jack Arnold okay. two years before had a, a movie tarantula. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know, I don't I don't know if there are any tarantulas. 
in, in, in basements like that, but it, yeah, it becomes very, very powerful when, you know, the, the big, uh, you know, drops of water falling down is huge. And, you know, the special effects, I, I think, were, were very, very good. But then in the end, after he beats this spider, he's able to crawl up and, and, and go out, out outside through just the, the screen. The, the, he gets so small, he can fit through a screen window. And then he keeps shrinking down until he gets to a molecular size or subatomic size. And he gives this whole soliloquy that I, I like to quote in, in, in drushes a lot, especially if I'm, if I'm not talking to you know, a very Haredish crowd. It's one of my favorite self-discovery, right? Of, of how he knows his life is over, but it isn't really over, right? And again, I think this, this is why I think it's a, a very nice companion piece. Uh, to Thieves Highway. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I always, you know, I compare it to the Pasuk we say in Hallel, you know, that, you know, like the godless of HaKadosh Baruch Hu was that he looks down, Shemayim Oretz, he looks down on, on, on us little people and that, that you know, it's, that he's not aloof from us, but he's so intimately involved with in Hashkocha Pratis even to and it, certainly the Hasidic farm seems like it's down to a subatomic level. And that's something I, I, you know, I'll preach about a lot. And then I'll, I'll often look at this soliloquy from the end of the incredible shrinking man. I know. Do you want to play to become what? The infinitesimal. What was I? Still a human being? Or was I the man of the future? If there were other bursts of radiation, other clouds drifting across seas and continents, would other beings follow me into this vast new world? So close, the infinitesimal and the infinite. But suddenly I knew they were really the two ends of the same concept. The unbelievably small and the unbelievably vast eventually meet like the closing of a gigantic circle. I looked up, as if somehow I would grasp the heavens, the universe, worlds beyond number, God's silver tapestry spread across the night. And in that moment, I knew the answer to the riddle of the infinite. I had thought in terms of man's own limited dimension. I had presumed upon nature that existence begins and ends is man's conception, not nature's. And I felt my body dwindling, melting, becoming nothing. My fears melted away, and in their place came acceptance. All this vast majesty of creation, it had to mean something. And then I meant something too. Yes, smaller than the smallest. I meant something too. To God, there is no zero. I still exist.
in, in science fiction horror films. Uh, not the, the prose that Grant Williams utters was obviously probably from the Richard Matheson novel, probably word for word in his screenplay. Uh, but even this this idea that the idea of a beginning and an end is something that man needs to to function, but really from from God's perspective, there is no beginning, there is no end. Um, shrinking into nothingness is really the same thing as being part of of of, of the greatness, as we call the Ain Self. Really, yeah. So, um, do you think that the you know you know the the music there is very and uh, uh, and even his visage is very much similar to what you see in a lot of Christian films. Um, the, the ringing of the bells, there's a sense of, 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 of you know, the epiphany is, it, it isn't, it isn't a uh, Christ-like message, but he has, he almost has the appearance uh, of someone like a, in something in a sand and sandal or biblical epic. No? Yeah. Yeah. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting, uh, it's, it's an interesting way to look at it and i think part of you know when we talk about these journeys i think part of it was you know, perhaps a uh, uh an admonition against uh the perceptions that we have uh in even political machinations and other things about how we how we check the world out but maybe that's part of the reason why i think i guess the film uh isn't just like the 50-foot woman you know or something oh, yeah. like that you know. <laughs> shrinking one was Doctor Cyclops, which is considered to be a, a better, a better movie. Um, and then earlier than that was, uh, oh, what was the one with Lionel Barrymore? I'm trying to remember the, the Devil Doll. Mm. There, were, there were a few movies with the same title that were were not related at all. But the, from the 1930s, MGM Devil Doll, uh, it was a, a brilliant, brilliant movie, but it didn't. It didn't capture the the plight of the people shrinking quite the way that this one does, you know. But, but, but again, if you if you listen to that last soliloquy when he talks about there's other clouds of radiation, that right? They that this was really you know there was a fear of what the atomic bomb had unleashed, whether it was the Cold War or the threat of of of, of, of this type of radioactive night. In this right. film, you know, Matheson's message here, I think, is somewhat of an antidote to that, whether it could really be readily adopted by the moviegoers. You know, I'm, I, you know, I'm not sure, but, you know. I, you know Meaning and, a hopeful message uh, beyond that, that to say that it's, it's and that not. Even, in other words, even if this is a world that has changed, we can't live in that fear, uh, even though the world has changed. You know, Naga, Hiroshima, you know, Hiroshima, Nagasaki have changed the world. Um, you know, we have to see things from from a different perspective. Um, we can't just wait. You know, we can't just wail and bemoan our helplessness uh, because the constructs of what we hope to happen uh, don't seem to be developing. Uh, uh, you know, science fiction. But I think that none of these films have anything like a terrible monster, a terrible gangster, um, someone who is um, uh, grotesque. They really are the, the, the fear of what's around us, fear that's, that, 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 that permeates, uh, that could help us discover 
in the mundane areas that I think of that are so deep in our psyche, I think that what occurs instead is really uh, not just a, like the original um, railroad film. I think one of the first films, right, the Yitzhak was was people being brought into the theater and watching a train coming at them. I right. think that, I, I think that in a way, that type of perspective uh, of how the nat how the, the normal everyday seen in the dark, seen uh, from your living room chair, seen in a different way, can touch elements of 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 of, of primal fear, worry, and maybe a, a way to even discover um, something uh, methods of dealing with issues, dealing with things that we can't control. Um, and that way, uh, what we have here is therapy. <laughs> and there's nothing better than enjoying yourself and being able to arise from that chair, Yitzhak, um, and say, yeah, you know what? I think I can handle it now. What result can you have from 90 minutes of, of wasting time. Um, that's it, my friends. Watch your step on the way out. We'll catch you again next week. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.